I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Think about your favorite food. Whatever it is, it's probably safe to say you think it's tasty, unless you're some sort of foodie masochist. But do you think it's really tasty? Objectively tasty? How much of our taste is biological, and how much is constructed, culturally, socially, maybe even morally? It's exactly questions like this one that have accompanied Ruti Russo on her lifelong journey to discover food. Ruti Russo is a well-known Israeli chef and food journalist. She's the daughter of Nira Russo, who you might call Israel's Julia Child, and she has just released her first cookbook, Ruti Russo's Kitchen. Ruti joins us today to talk about her personal love story with food. Thank you so much Hi. for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so we're gonna before we get to the episode, guys. Uh, the Chosen One card game. These these guys are our sponsors. Um, Check them out at thechosenonegame.com. And we're going to play a little bit of it. It's really, really funny. Basically, it's question and answer cards that you match up and you get these hilarious combinations. So we're going to do a little bit. I've, I've, I've given you all answer and question cards. Okay. And we're going to hope cool. that it's so not too embarrassing. So the question is the white one. Okay. okay. So you grab the white one. Okay. So you ask us a question and then we'll see which one's the funniest answer. Okay. No, this no, is not good. No, you should do it randomly. No, because okay, this is a good one for okay. me. A proper Shabbat dinner wouldn't be complete without... Pizza-flavored Pringles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is how you play. Now I just, I just understood. Another one. Pull another question. Wait, I want to answer that one too. Okay. What is it? A perfect Shabbat dinner wouldn't, wouldn't, be, be, wouldn't be complete without... Schmaltz for lube. <laughs> I don't even know what schmaltz is. Schmaltz. Ruti will explain to you later. Just add, hmm? and it should be kosher. Just add Moses' little bro Arnon. <laughs> and it, it should, should be, be kosher. kosher. Just add fake news, and it should be kosher. <laughs> oh, I love that one. <laughs> yeah, the last one. This time, eight on pull. Right, I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna read the question. I dodge the IDF to focus on. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Chopped human liver and onions. <laughs> Die, Dayenu. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. All right, so, guys. So check them out. The Chosen One the game. Yeah, it's just a taste. They have human like 400 liver. cards in here or something. Okay, so. I know what we're going to do after the interview. <laughs> <laughs> The Chosen One Game, uh, thechosenonegame.com. And, guys, for listeners, 2NJB. Use the uh, promo code 2NJB, and you get a nice discount. Yep. So check them out, thechosenonegame.com. And now, first of all, explain to Aitan what schmaltz is. It's basically Schmaltz is um, the fat from a chicken. Or Um, any. Oh, wow. That was like... Yeah, from a chicken or any uh, poultry or... I mean, it can be from a duck or a goose, but... uh, But in Europe, you would use it like it was like butter, right? Yeah, because this this allows you to use um, some sort of a formed um, firm fat instead of butter. uh, When you cook something Uh, with meat. So it's basically uh, like the lard version... The yes, Jewish version exactly. of lard. Exactly. Wow. Ah, okay. It's a better definition. I think <laughs> I should go. <laughs> but it's Even probably not as tasty. 
It's so good. Schmaltz is good? Oh, it's amazing. I'm so happy I can use the word schmaltz now so and know what times. it means. <laughs> schmaltz is good? It's like the basic, most essential ingredient in one of the most essential like ones. Like Eastern European, uh, Jewish. Eastern European Jews, right. Uh, yeah. okay. But And it's good with everything. I mean, like Hungarians, they use it in every dish, even in sweets. Really? Because so I have to say, the first thing I imagine, like schmaltz is almost an automatopoeia. An automatopoeia is a word that, you know, describes the sound it makes. So it's almost an automatopoeia. And the first thing that came to mind was the jelly from the gefilte fish. That's what I thought it was. I was like, schmaltz. That's schmaltz. It's the same in its weirdness. Yeah. But <laughs> more tasty. But it's good, yes. Okay. Once you put it in your mouth, it's just completely different. I like how that's a parameter of food. Weirdness. <laughs> it's the same in its weirdness. So tell us about your TED uh, lecture. How did you come up with that? Um... Okay, it took me, I think it took me several years to work on this TED because it's something that built gradually. I mean, I travel a lot and I get to see many people who work with food. Um, I mean, it can be in agriculture or restaurants or just people who enjoy food and that happens everywhere. And I just dig into their plates all the time. I mean, that's my thing. Like I, I go to restaurants and I ask strangers to try from their dish. Really? And I really you do that. You have to like, get some pretty uh, angry responses. I dress so. nicely, okay. so they're more <laughs> open-minded. Or meant to think you up on them. And, uh, <laughs> yes. That also must have happened. <laughs> Sexual harassment. They call the cops. <laughs> but, uh, some whatever it takes. To... No, it's just... I can't, chutzpah. I, can't, uh, I can't control it. When I see something that I'm interested at, maybe I won't try it. I mean, I won't ask them to try it. I would say, what are you having? Is it good? Should I have it? So at some point... They would say, do you want to try it? I would be yes. Yeah, that's actually a perfect example of Israeli chutzpah. Because like in America, it's considered horribly rude to even look at someone else's plate, let yeah. alone ask no, to I eat it. No, I don't look. I stare. <laughs> Just stare. Are you going to finish that? <laughs> nice. Okay, so so this this TED Talk so, yeah, wait. is... So I, I was... Yeah. Um, I was traveling and um, I started noticing that I get a lot from looking at plates. I mean, I understand about broader things than just um, what you're having and if it's good or not. I mean, you can look at a plate and understand something about the um, financial situation of the person who's eating this, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you can understand, you can um, you can tell if they're rich, if they're poor, if they're vegetarian, if they're keeping their weight. You can understand things about them, about them, but you can understand things about um, general stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. you can see if there are imported uh, products in the plates. You can see if it's rich, if it has diversity, if it has many fresh produce. You can learn a lot from a plate. Mm -hmm. And um, Not only about the person eating it, but about right, the context about the of the country. Exactly. The yeah. situation uh, around the person. Yeah. And... Um, and then at some point, I was working on a, on a, a piece about Ethiopian food. Um, it was related to an American star chef, Marcus Samuelson, who mm -hmm. had just opened his first Ethiopian restaurant in New York. It was called Mercato 55 in Soho. And um, since I worked in New York during the time that he was at his uh, most uh, fame, um, I was really excited that I'm going to speak to Marcus Samuelson himself. You worked as a journalist? No, I worked as a personal assistant to Chef David Burke, who was then the rising star of the American culinary. 
uh, crazy years. I was working and and um, um, uh, going to culinary school at the same time. And Marcus Samuelson was at the top top ten chefs in New York at at that time. And but when I mentioned it to my editors that I'm going to I'm working on a piece about Ethiopian food and um, I'm going to speak to Marcus Samuelson and this new restaurant and it, they're serving uh, high end Ethiopian food. And I just encountered the same jokes over and over. They were like, what are they serving there? Empty plates? Or they would just say, uh, Ethiopian food is not tasty. Mm -hmm. and, to our uh, audience, what, what is Ethiopian food? Well, it, I first guess many of all, Americans is, don't know, right? It is based on, on a thousands of years of this uh, very ancient culture. So when people say, well, it is a poor country and the food and the culinary is based on a poor culture. So it's not true because there are so many years that Ethiopia was an empire. So, and, and they were still eating injera. Injera is the Ethiopian bread. It's a flat bread uh, made of uh, teff. Teff is, um, um, how do you say that? Some kind of grain? Yes, like it's wheat. some kind of a grain. It's exactly. similar to uh, the Yemenite bread, right? No, like it's similar the... in the look. It looks a little bit like pancake yeah, with yeah, the bubbles yeah. uh, and the texture a little bit, but it, the flavor is completely different. I mean, it's uh, much richer, a little sour. It's made out of sourdough. Um, and it has a very distinct flavor that you might necessarily like at first try. But then I say, who liked sushi at first try? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Eating raw fish is, is, I mean, if you didn't grow up with eating raw fish, you didn't necessarily like sushi. The, the seaweed is sometimes even more difficult for people because it's got that like yeah, really... I can tell you're younger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, to give our listeners a point of reference, and maybe I'm completely yes. like revealing how, I guess, uh, prejudiced racist. I am or, uh, yeah, or, or <laughs> not racist, but like, like generalizing, but... It's kind of similar Ethiopian food to Indian food in a way. No? What? No. 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 Okay. No. 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 Wait. It's, it's not spice. It's it's got the same. It's got similar spices. Something it's... with the spices has. I can understand why you're saying that. As an American who knows nothing about food. <laughs> no, I can understand why you're saying that. Obviously, talking about Indian food is a little difficult because Indian food, India, is is almost a continent. I mean, the diversity mm -hmm. in India is like you can find so yeah. many yeah, foods yeah. there. Um, but there's something about the spices that I can understand why you see some resemblance. Yes. Yeah. But to someone like who doesn't have any reference to it, maybe that's like a good place to imagine. But so back to New York. Yeah. Yes. So then I wanted to see since I got those reactions from editors and friends about Ethiopian foods, I wanted to check for myself. I went online. I checked first in an Israeli search engine mm -hmm. and then in the New York Times restaurant um, uh, search engine. And even though both the Israeli one and the New York Times had so many categories and subcategories to find different restaurants, like you can find Italians in Israel, you can find Italian, you can find Japanese, you can find Mexican, w whatever. In, uh, in the New York Times back then, I'm talking about 10, 12 years ago, you could find um, Sicilian food. I mean, it was not Italian. You could go to the, mm -hmm. um, to the regions. Tuscan, yeah. But I couldn't find Ethiopian food. It was under a huge category of African cuisine. And when you look at Africa, I mean, 
It's a huge continent. It's 20% of the dry land of the world. You have like at least four or five different kinds of uh, seas uh, bordering the continent. Different climates. You have deserts. You have uh, subtropical. You have tropical. Obviously, it's not one kitchen. Mm-hmm. Okay. But even the New York Times, the most liberal newspaper, you know, they didn't have a category for Ethiopian food. And this was, uh, people, whenever I do my, my lecture or uh, even in my uh, TED talk, I always talk about Ethiopian food. It's my thing, okay? <laughs> But I use it just as an example because in Israel, for example, you have, uh, whenever I want, at any point of the day, if I want to make Japanese food, I can go to any 24-hour supermarket to the Asian department and buy whatever mm-hmm. Asian food, the ingredients that I want and make, uh, make sushi. Yeah. If I want to make Ethiopian food, you can't find any yeah. of the ingredients that you need in a supermarket. And then I ask people, do you know how many uh, Japanese live in Israel? Less than a thousand. One of them is my brother-in-law, by the way. <laughs> Does <laughs> he make how- good sushi? He's amazing. He's a great cook. Okay. And how many Ethiopians live in Israel? Like 100,000. A little over 150,000. Yeah. So where do they buy the ingredients? It's very difficult for them and it's very expensive because there's no competition. Like the teff, for example, for one kilo, you pay 18 shekels, which is what, like five, five dollars? 18, yeah. Yes, five, five dollars for a kilo of the, f- of the basic yeah. flour they need five to make the... Five dollars. Five dollars. Just for, for comparison, a, a kilo of flour is like less than a dollar, right? Right, it's about a dollar. A dollar. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And this is five times and they're not the richest community in Israel. And, no, and, and no, the, ba- the most basic ingredient for their kitchen is so expensive. So how do you explain that? Like, why, why is that? Should we, you want to dig deep into this? Um, well, I, wa- I want to, I just, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think in many ways, the world is like a huge classroom and every country has its uh, popularity rank. That is usually according to its financial, uh, um, its army, its uh, strategic, its touristic um, uh, rank as well. Ethiopia is at the bottom list. And um, this affects the, the, how, how much money we're willing to spend on Ethiopian food and But- how open we are to try it, to learn to like it. We don't necessarily like food the first time we try it. We learn to like. Mm-hmm. new flavors so i think uh, that's that's uh, at least one of the problems here first of all c- couldn't it be that objectively like french cuisine couldn't you say that objectively french cuisine is richer or more refined refined than ethiopian for no. example no i can't say that first of all and second Who cares? You can make it however you want. Like if you go to a sushi place in Israel, they serve sushi, you know, with the three dips. You get like teriyaki, spicy mayo. Yeah. Like, in Japan, they don't serve then, it with mayo. And then we eat it like we eat hummus, right? We take the sushi and we dip it in the teriyaki and then in the spicy mayo. And this is how we eat it. This is Sounds how Japanese. So good. This is how <laughs> I always say to when Japanese hear how we eat sushi, they're like, ah, and I'm like, yeah. you should try it. It's really yeah. good this way. <laughs> So yeah. if we wanted to like Ethiopian food, we could have made adjustment to make it fit to our flavor. I mean, the thing is, I'm going back to Marcus Samuelson. 
when I finished writing this piece that was, it, it, it had a lot of um, thoughts about how people reacted and about the, uh, what I found in the search engines. And he closed the restaurants before I, uh, before I published the piece. Really? Yes. There just wasn't enough. There, weren't, there wasn't yes. enough interest. Yes. Six months ah. later. I think it was about six months. And it was like a, it was a high-end restaurant, right? It was, I, mean, it was... I think it was the first high-end uh, Ethiopian restaurant in the Western world. And today, wow. what's the situation in New York, just for perspective? Um, from what I've checked, I haven't seen anything like it since then. Really? Yes. So here it's big, in te- like here in Tel it's, Aviv. It's still, it's big, but it's still not high-end. <laughs> I mean, we have some yeah. new restaurants that are... Trendy, like uh, Balinjira, that are trendy. Uh, I don't eat the... Ethiopian food. But... <laughs> <laughs> What's the one oh, in really Keramatei Mani? Maganda? Yes, Balinjira. No, but isn't there Maganda or Magenda? Balinjira. Oh, yeah? Yes. No, but... It, the, the... <laughs> okay, anyway. I think that's the name of... Uh... No. Sorry. But the, the, that's the like... famous one in Keramatei Mani, okay. anyway. Okay. Maybe Balinjira? Balinjira. It's okay, really good. I wanted to ask, actually. What's the... is, that, is that the best one, you think? What's like I your favorite Ethiopian? I think that's Ethiopia. my favorite. Yeah. That's my favorite because they did something with the ambience as well. I mean, you go there and it's cool. It's interesting because I don't see... He has a girlfriend, right? And they go to restaurants a lot. And I don't see him in, you know, in the end of a work day. He goes to his girlfriend and he's like, Hey, babe, let's go. Let's go out. Maybe we'll try this new Ethiopian place. She's, she would slap him and... Are you kidding? No. no we were just at, at, at... And I mean, again, this is going back to the Indian comparison, but we're just at 24 rupee, which is like this really... You know, 24 rupee? Sure. It's this like Indian place. It's pretty grungy. Everybody sits on the floor. It's kind of like for all the, the the Israelis who go to India after the army and travel and do this mm-hmm. like trek around India and eat at these like, you know, really poor places. Right. So it's kind of trying to replicate that. Right. And it's really good. It's okay. tasty. Yeah. I, Indian food is tasty. You so- would love it. <laughs> Take her. She, she okay. would love it. So you we'll would go. Love it. And, and the food is healthy and good. And yeah. It's, just, it's delicious and it's a fun place. You should go there. What did you learn since... Uh, some years have passed, I yes. guess, since that New York experience. What did you learn since on your journey to decipher um, human taste? Bec- first, I started with the, um, I started digging deep into the social aspects of our personal taste to see how we actually learn to like things. We force ourselves to like things. This is why when you say, well, maybe this cuisine is just better. I mean, it's possible, but if we wanted to like the Ethiopian food or any other kind of cuisine, we would have learned how to like it. I, I always give an example of cigarettes. I mean, people who smoke, they had the first cigarette. It was gross. They choked. They It smelled bad. It wasn't healthy. And still, they lit another one, which was as bad as the first one. Probably the third was as bad as well. And suddenly, they get hooked and they love it. It's the same thing with beer. First time you have beer, it's disgusting. I'm not even talking about coffee. I mean, kids don't like coffee. It's bitter. We mm-hmm. learn to like it because it's cool, because it's a status. Because, And I think in, in some ways, uh, today, Ethiopian food in Tel Aviv, it's like uh, you, uh, you said it about moral. Maybe we learn to like it because we feel that it's morally right. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, our, uh, our taste can develop and change according to uh, things we tell our taste. Yeah, but... So what so, I get is that PR has a lot to do. Sure. So how sure. much of taste is like back to the question that we, how much is actually biological? 
Like, because percentage, <laughs> I'm not sure. I just say that a big part is uh, is uh, social, but yeah. there is a part that is biological. Because then, then I ask the question: Well, we still feel taste. I mean, if it was just social, then food would be just about the colors or about the. You would get like its uh, brand names, and it won't be. Yeah, uh, it would have nothing to do with our taste buds. But we do have taste buds. So, what? do we like to eat in terms of our biology? And there is uh, food that we like to eat um, from a biological point of view, but it's very basic because our biology is very basic. It's not sophisticated and it's not educated. Mm -hmm. So what tips do you have for a foodie who wants to enrich his... So the, the things we like to eat from a biological point of view, I and mean, that's everyone, that's the Japanese, the Ethiopians, the Israelis, everybody. Uh, we like to eat sweets, we like to eat salt, we like to eat fat, and we like to eat crispy food. And I have a whole explanation about why we like to eat crispy food, but uh, I'll just sum it up. This is, uh, for me, this is like the food safety, the, the most primitive food safety. I mean, this uh, when food is crispy, it usually means that it was exposed to a very high temperature and therefore it is mm. safe to eat. So we like these four things. So if you want to make something tasty, just uh, incorporate these four things into your food. But can I like, if I want, if I live in New York or in yes. Tel Aviv and I want to have like new experiences with food, how do I go about it? Like where, where should I go to go? What's in the 90s or 2000s? I don't know when was that experience you told us about, but it was Ethiopian. But today, what are like the upcoming interesting exotic cuisines someone should try and check out, you think? First of all, I think African cuisine is definitely an interesting upcoming kitchen um, because um, unlike many other countries, it is still um, untouched. I mean, each had, country in Africa un, has its own unwesternized. Right. I yeah. mean, it. It There's no obviously it had the it. effects of um, of colonialism of many years of colonialism. But even that is interesting. Like I've been to Ethiopia and they have a lot of pizza there, right? Yes, and they, some exactly. of them actually speak Italian. Yes, like and a lot of generation. Italian food. They were you conquered see? by the by Italy. Yeah. Right. So um, so, I mean. So, uh, I don't know what I was going to ask. Okay, <laughs> let's, go, let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. So, you grew up in the household where food was very present, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Um, first of all, I was born in the States. Um, I was born in Boston. Uh, my dad is American. My mom is Israeli. After one winter in um, Chicago, she told my dad, please have fun. Enjoy this weather. I'm back in Tel Aviv with... Um, me and my sister I'm going to the beach in February <laughs> you can stay here in the snow and my mom wasn't I mean she didn't come from a house of people my, my grandmother wasn't cooking but when she was in New York my dad comes from a Turkish family and he came from a house of lots of food and really really good food And this is, she learned to cook from his family, from him. He started taking her to restaurants. Suddenly she discovered this entire world. Where was she born? She's from Tel Aviv. And her parents? Uh, Poland. Explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> And Tel Aviv didn't have much to offer uh, during the first years of right. the country. Neither Poland. 
<laughs> but you can still see like uh, Polish um, origin people who do cook. But yeah. my grandmother wasn't one of them okay. anyway. She made three things with a lot of anxiety around them and that's it. Okay. Um, <laughs> Everything good... with a lot of yeah, anxiety. It's a good when word you're to describe Polish food. <laughs> <laughs> it's anxious. <laughs> So, um, and then she started learning, uh, she, she started taking some classes when she was in the state. She started taking some cooking classes and she was always really talented and an excellent writer. Um, and when she got back to Israel, she offered, uh, she offered some newspapers to write a food column, which was, wasn't a thing then. I mean, we didn't have food columns in the newspaper. Um, and, and she started writing for Haaretz and... I remember it, I was about six years old and I think in two weeks it became such a big thing. And this is the seventies. This is the beginning of the eighties. What was yes. she writing about? Like local restaurants or restaurants? No, or she was writing recipes. General? Ah, recipes. how did she come up with the recipes? She, she started experimenting. Not, yeah. Experimenting, but she also brought, I mean, we didn't have anything here. So, she started bringing like American food uh -huh. and French food and Italian food and and making it here with the local ingredients and just and you were the guinea pig. Yes, but <laughs> we didn't appreciate it. No? Me and my sister, yes, my sister and I, we didn't appreciate it. We were bad eaters, really, really bad eaters. My sister, especially, she she used to like my mom would make Chinese food and my sister would spend an hour and a half just separating everything on her plate <laughs> so she'll have like corn rice noodles the anxious <laughs> food made you anxious eaters. <laughs> so yeah i i didn't i don't think i appreciated what i had until i left home i'm being honest i kept like people kept asking me how does it feel to be nira's daughter how does it feel to be nira's daughter and i was like you don't understand like you don't really I thought everyone eat this way that every day mm -hmm. you have something new that suddenly this um, someone delivers this uh, new vegetable that they have here in Israel and they want her to develop recipes. So for a month and a half, you eat this weird fruit or weird vegetables. And like she does, like she makes pasta with it and she makes uh, casseroles or she makes chicken. Like you just eat it over and over again with so many varieties. And, uh, different it, all, it all makes sense to me now that like you, you talk about trying all these different foods and this is kind of how you grew up. What's the wackiest thing that she ever brought home that you remember that, that she ever made, I don't know, make you eat snails or? No, she's not that, she's not that adventurous when it okay. comes to, no. And we all like very pro animals. So it was not about like monkey brains and stuff. Uh, she did bring, she was in China and she did bring home crickets, but they were <laughs> and live. You, and you ate them? No, she brought them as pets. Ah, actually my <laughs> parents just came back from China and turns out it's a big hobby there. Yes. To, pet to, crickets. Yes. Pet crickets. So yeah. I don't know how she bought it on the plane, but we had crickets for a while. Wow. So in terms of like the weird stuff that she made, yeah, there were many like I don't know the name in uh, the name in English. It looks like a cherry with a like um, it's a fruit, the yellow fruit that looks like a cherry, and yeah. it has like a... it's a power food now, right? Yes, yeah. yes. In Africa, they grow it. Um, I don't Apricot? remember. Its I name. don't remember the name. Yes, like but, it's like it's a small it's some as kind a cherry. of a berry. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a berry. It's a yellow. Berry. Now it's a super food, power right. food. 
uh, it comes in this shell, which is like paper. Right. Right. And it's gorgeous. We'll find it. Yeah, we'll Google it. I know it someone who it. imports it to Israel, so we'll find it. They or, grow it in Israel. Or, yeah, they, he imports it to Africa. Yeah, exactly. Oh, uh, Wait, you said you're uh, very like pro-animal. Are you vegetarian or vegan? No, but we do like, uh, instead of meatless Monday, we do meat Friday. Mm. Mm. Uh, one, day a, yes. one day a week with meat. Yes. Yeah, that's we like, that's like blasphemy in America. Yeah, so one day with energy <laughs> a week. Okay. Um... Cool. Okay. So crickets. And Did you uh, ever eat a cricket? <laughs> no. There no. was there was some crickets in the office the other day, and people were eating them. That's They're kosher. Just... So, but but in the end of the day, you didn't rebel. You went and oh, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I tried um, after the army service. Uh, I was writing in the newspaper. I did the army service in the IDF spokesman's uh, office, and. Um, it was very intense and I just wanted to be a waitress. I mean, after, <laughs> like I did national service also very, um, a very intense, uh, uh, some very intense years between national service and the army service. And then uh, it was during all the terrorist attacks in the first Israel. First Intifada. No, I think I'm younger than you think. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, because you say the 80s. That was no, offensive. No, the 80s I was six. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In the army, it was uh, 96. Oh. It was right army. after. Okay. It was the second, uh, uh, closer to the second intifada. Um, <laughs> my math is horrendous. Yeah. Okay. It's my fault. Now he's trying to cover up. He yeah. has excellent math. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm just going to check my hair afterwards. <laughs> um, so you... you. So, yeah. And then I told my mom, I just want to leave everything behind and be a waitress. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to New York. To a Polish she, mother saying She loved it. Yeah, of course. She almost killed me. Seriously. This was probably the biggest fight I'm I had. I'm a waitress till I die. <laughs> I always mother. dreamt of you being a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> Bubble. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah, I left everything. I went to New York. I was waitressing for three weeks um, on those... Uh, Little boats that go to the Statue of Liberty, you know? <laughs> really? Best, it's the lowest the best, Yes, the fairies. Best three weeks in my life. Seriously. I mean, Does being a waitress is a dream come true. I wish I could go back to... First of all, they have Why? restaurants on those boats? Yeah, I mean, it's like a prom, like uh, after high school. Uh, like they okay. rent uh, one of those boats and we go travel. And you the... like serve champagne. And, and, uh, like... They can't drink, so we serve... Ah, okay cranberries and <laughs> soda yeah but, wow um, good tips good tips yeah so you worked on those boats for three, three weeks. weeks and then wow. um yes best time really best that's amazing time. just going back and forth from the statue of liberty <laughs> exactly like yes, that same route yes, yes. <laughs> for three weeks wow you must have been sick of the statue of liberty i i i was no, no? i couldn't care well, i guess I yeah, just, three weeks isn't that much yeah. Okay. And, and then what happened? But then um, a friend of my mom uh, contacted me because my mom told her that I'm I'm in New York, and she said that this famous chef is looking for a personal assistant, and maybe I should uh, meet him. And I said okay. And my English. Did was you have any experience in? Nothing in, and I didn't have any experience except in um, being in the IDF spokesman's office. <laughs> did you have kitchen service in the IDF? <laughs> Not no. at all. And three weeks of waiting tables <laughs> exactly. on ferries. Yes. I mean, come on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I was 
as prepared to life as a girl from Ramot Hashavim, which is the smallest village in Israel, in the big city, meeting a huge chef, not understanding anything and not even speaking English. Yeah, I have so to say, on your, on, on your Wikipedia page, right, in Hebrew, there's like, you were born in Boston and grew up in Ramot Hashavim. Hashavim. And they're yeah. both linked, right? So you hover over the Boston thing and there's pictures of bridges and skyscrapers. <laughs> and then you move over to Ramot Hashavim and it's a bush and a car. <laughs> it's like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's my life. <laughs> um, so he, he took you. He was so desperate. So this is David mm. Burke. Yes, that's David who, Burke, yes. Who, who, tell us about him because we're completely ignorant. He's, um, um, he... When I was working with him, he was the chef of the Smith, Smith & Molenski restaurant group and the chef of uh, Park Avenue Cafe, which was uh, then it was probably one of the best restaurants in the, in the city. Um, he was um, uh, called by the New York Times the most imitated chef in the U.S. Uh, oh, wow. Is yeah. he Jewish? Not at all. No. No. Okay. I was just wondering Darn. how the connection. No. Like, how did the connection happen? How did she know someone who knew someone? Because or... she was doing some benefits with American chefs, so oh, okay. she met him. She was working with some uh, some of. So uh, he's like, you're accepted, and then the he morning said, after it was a Thursday, and he said, come Monday, or it was a Friday, and he said, just come on okay. Monday. Monday. And and I I swear I didn't say a word during the interview. He was just really desperate. Like every PA he had either wasn't doing a good job or didn't last too long, and he just or maybe he had a good intuition because we stayed for several years. And he's I thank him in my book. He thanks me in his. <laughs> um, wow, that's amazing. How so, did the first day look like there? I quit. The what? first day I quit. Yes, because I said. He asked me to write an email to someone and he just left the office and my English was very bad and it took me about three and a half hours to write this one sentence. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, it was just one sentence. That's it. It took me about an hour and a half or three hours or whatever. I mean, do just, you remember the sentence? It was just like, um, Thank you for your lovely note. Uh, please uh, call my office to schedule a meeting. I'm not kidding. This was the email. Okay. Wow. But it took me forever, and I was shaking when I I had to press send. Like yeah, I, this was it. There was no Google Translate. Right. Yeah. Um, and I sent it, and I was like, I I can't I can't do it. Like I I would answer the phone, and I would get so. Um, so nervous that that I couldn't understand what people are saying on the other side. <laughs> I was like, just can you repeat this? Can you repeat? It? Just and Until I you figured. Quit. Wait, so at the end of the first day, you were like, I'm sorry, but I quit. And yeah, I told to I told um, the the girl from the office who was doing her name was Denise, and she was trying to teach me what to do, and she left me at some point, and I was there at the office by myself. And towards the end of the day, I told her, listen, I can't do this. I mean, it's too much. I'm not qualified for this job. And she just looked at me and she said, you're qualified. Don't worry. <laughs> said, it will get better. Don't worry. <laughs> so then you spent how many years with him? You spent over two years. Wow. Yes. And he taught you all the essentials. And I fell in love with the restaurant business. I mean, this was, first of all, moving out of my house. I started missing my mom's food and realizing that food is not automatically served uh, when you're hungry. I mean, when 
you grow up with a mother like this, you think that when you're hungry, food is served. And suddenly you realize that when you're hungry, you would stay hungry unless you make some food for yourself. <laughs> and I don't think you realize that yet, Eitan. No, no. <laughs> Too many restaurants. In, Tal- in Florentine. <laughs> yeah. So I started missing my mom and missing her food and falling in love with the restaurant business. I mean, it's just the sound of a good service in a restaurant. I still love it. Like when you hear, you just, it has a flow when you go, when you enter a restaurant and you don't have that here. No, <laughs> you really don't. You Sometimes really don't. you do. Sometimes you do, but it's not. It's very rare. The but cleaning it's very rare. of the dish. The you hear like the thing of the cheers, you know, people cheering. You hear a woman laughing and you hear the you force basically, the I feel like what it is, is you don't hear anything high bad. High tension. Exactly. You don't feel like That's this it. bad tension, which is what you feel every restaurant here. That's it's it. Just like, You're so right. You don't feel, you don't get that tension. Yeah. And it just, it's like music to my ears still, even these days. And I knew I want to be in the restaurant business. But, yeah. And in New York, you can't be in the restaurant business unless you go through all the stages. You have to learn the kitchen. You have to learn the front. So I started spending some time in the kitchen in Park Avenue Cafe. And at some point, I enrolled to the FCI, which was then uh, the FCI. Today, it has a different name, the French Culinary Institute in Soho. Um, crazy year. I mean, working every morning, 8 to 5, and then running to... Uh, running downtown and going to school five till midnight day after day after day you it's just very very difficult and very um very intense um and, and then and so you would be you'd be working in the day learning, learning at night right. and you had like zero time to yourself zero Wait, that's exhausting for this is for a year or two yes, years one year one year and then, uh, so you you went to study actual like how to how to cook, right? It's culinary school, right? Okay. And um, before that, was David Burke kind of like mentoring you, uh, or during? I had to learn everything backwards because I had to like write his recipes and like follow him around when he does like he would do like res- uh, recipe development, and I would be in the kitchen like write down what he does, wow, or I would uh, like edit, uh, work on his books, and work on his. At some point, I started writing because writing is my thing. I mean, I, I'm, I'm the worst PA. You just have to understand. <laughs> I'm the wor- I have other qualities that compensate for the fact that like my administrative skills are the worst. I'm sure that he knows it till this day. Like I never file. I'm unorganized. Where is he today? He's got many, like he's got his restaurant groups today scattered all over huge. the U.S. Yeah, he's very big. He's not with the Smith & Walensky restaurant group now. But, but he's did got you his... ever have actually a restaurant here in no. Israel? No, no, right? Never. Right. When I came back to Israel um, with my New York, New Yorkish education, um, Aharoni, uh, one of the biggest chefs here, mm-hmm. um, introduced me to Rafi Cohen. Do you know him? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rafi Cohen. He just, uh, he left uh, Jerusalem ready to open Rafael, his first uh, restaurant uh, in Tel Aviv. Is, he was... is Herbert Samuel also his? No, 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 that's... Uh, that was, he was uh, now in headlines because I think he went bankrupt or something yes, like that. right. But after... Like, really? Yeah. His name's like on every salad. Yes. In the supermarket. <laughs> yes. He had some Makes really, sense. he yeah. had some really, really good years, though, at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... So I went to the first meeting with him and I just came like everything I knew was from New York. So I it was at his place and I came with like 
makeup skirt like really nice shirt jacket high heels and he opens the door in his pajamas <laughs> <laughs> and like i'm like so overdressed <laughs> and at first like the first um few months in the restaurant i was working i was like running the office And I was always overdressed. I mean, it took me years to like balance myself back <laughs> to the Israeli yeah. style and uh, the way we do it here. And to realize that in Israel, in order to have a restaurant, you just need a pulse. I mean, I thought you need education and you need experience and you need uh, this. Yeah. Here you need a pulse and it doesn't have to be stable too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> um, so after working with him for a little bit, um, I got a job offer to write in Mariv newspaper. And it was always a struggle for me to decide if I want to write or if I want to work with food. And I left food and went writing. And is at there, some point... Is there I a just, dream at some point to open a uh, restaurant? Um, Now that I you know how exactly. dangerous it is. Exactly. Suicidal. In Israel, especially in Israel, there was a dream. Definitely, there was a dream of opening a restaurant. But the more I learned about it, the more I understood what it takes and the danger, um, not danger, the risk that you're taking, not just for you, but for your family, mm -hmm. the people but around you. Maybe you'd be the first one to open, you know, a restaurant with like good quality food and service. I won't. No? <laughs> no. Well, why do you think that is that? that i mean it's like making a movie a, here in israel it reminds uh, me like making a movie like it's completely you have to be a complete lunatic to do that yes but Why? i mean but wouldn't i mean isn't that kind of like There's a no place where made. you can no but that's exactly the place where you can kind of forge your way in the market or like corner out a little slice of the market is to like provide this amazing experience that just there's you don't find it here Like every place is like high stress. There's, you know, there's no organization. There's no service opening like this. But the like, risk, the risk is just too big, I guess. I have, first of all, I have to say I disagree with your observations about uh, Israeli restaurants. But um, well, but that's what we we're talking about. The fact that the service here and the atmosphere is think, just this like high. I think Israelis, yes, they are intense. But on the other hand, you'll get like the fun part. I mean, of uh. course, it won't be as polite and polished as um, like if you go to one of the European fancy restaurants. No, you won't get that. But who wants that? No, but not <laughs> I mean, even the I European. It's like I remember as a kid, you go to the restaurants in America And it's just there's something like you were talking about. There's something soothing about it. You just like it's so it's nice and it's relaxing. And it's just people like it's it's relaxation. That's what it is. People going out for a night to just have dinner and relax. And you walk into the restaurant and from the first moment, it's not like high end restaurants. Mm -hmm. From the first moment, someone, you know, seats you in the waiting room and gets you a glass of water or whatever and takes care of you and they walk you nicely to your table Israelis, and it's like i'm not yes, sure they they look for that no you don't think so no yeah. i don't besides here to start a restaurant i think like it you lose from the get-go because you're 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 chained you're chained by the rabbanut by the ingredients right. mm -hmm. you have like half of the ingredients any european restaurant uses you don't even have mm-hmm Which and is, and the worst problem you have here is labor. I mean that labor. Nobody wants to work. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. and then you have to illegally employ Or foreigners. Uh, even you you they work legally, but they're very very expensive. Yeah, you pay like high taxes if you if mm. you hire them. Yes. So 
You need so, to be really, yeah. So no, no rest, no routine resort. But on <laughs> no. the other hand, we gotta talk about the fact that Israeli food is like is doing crazy. And now in New York, mm-hmm. it's so trendy. Mm-hmm. We had Michael Solomonov here. Uh, oh, whoa. Um, how do you explain that? Oh, Mike is in Israel now. Ah, he is. Yes. Um, how do I explain that? Okay, I'm going back to our to my talk. Uh-huh. I think it's all political. I think the fact I mean first of all, yeah, I have to say objectively, I think Israeli food is very good <laughs> um I mean it has good p r as we say it's um there's something a little wild and it has some chutzpah and it's colorful and it's uh easy to promote, okay, unlike if I had like this uh, if I had this like very gray bland food, it would be a little more difficult to promote it. But this is very colorful and very a happy kitchen in a way. But I think, um, and I worked for many years, I worked as an ambassador of uh, Israeli food, which is um, another thing that I love to do because I really believe in what I'm doing. I, I, I think through food, you can introduce other aspects of Israel that people don't usually know. And I could tell, as I said, that you can learn how to like um, uh, different kitchens that you, you haven't tried before if you're willing to. I felt that wherever I go, and I've been everywhere talking and introducing Israeli food, I'm talking about uh, Beijing, Tokyo, Korea, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, uh, Italy, London, um, New York, Los Angeles, uh, Turkey. Wherever I went, I felt that people... Not just, I mean, they love the food, but I think they love the food, not because I made it so good. They love the food because they really wanted to like Israeli food. And in that sense, I think that um, the, what people really think about Israel is a bit different than what they say that, about Israel. Um, what do you mean? That you would see in the media, you would see in like international media, you would see a lot of criticism and you would get the, you would get the feeling that people hate us everywhere, but I think people respect us and, um, and we curious. have, a, they're curious, they, um, they admire our strength. They admire the fact that we are so developed in, um, We've uh, reached so much in uh, such a short time. Um, and other other things that they know about Israel work on a different aspect on them than what they read on the news. And at the end of the day, they like they like Israel. They're pro-Israel. Even if they when they sit with their friends, they might have some criticism and they might say something else. but as long as they have the, the privilege to actually experience Israel in some level. So if they eat the food, like you said, or if they've met an Israeli, but if they have they travel then, here, yeah. And yeah all, if all they get is the, the media, then even if what they get is the media, they're still like, they would try so? it. They would try the Israeli food and they most likely they would like it. It's easy to like. I'm it's being honest. Ambassador it's, is what you're saying. Yeah. And, and uh, especially, is it okay that we're so political? Are you fine yeah. with it? I think that whoever wants to open an Israeli restaurant in the States, Trump, during Trump era, is the best time. I mean, because since he's pro-Israel, then 
this is the best time um, to open a, a I, you can, and you can call it the the squad uh, restaurant or <laughs> <laughs> right or Rashida's, Rashida's kitchen <laughs> <laughs> okay so the book is out and will it be translated uh, English? It was it was translated the original plan was to uh, publish the book in English not in Hebrew because um, after traveling um, uh, after doing my my thing a couple of times in the US I felt that it would be right to have a book in English um, the demand is right immense. right and um, and this is a very down-to-earth Israeli kitchen I mean Israeli recipes and With ingredients from a supermarket and even I did some adaptations for the English version so you could because I know the American supermarkets I, I've lived there for a while like what's the one of the your favorite recipes here God, this oh me <laughs> oh this is a great one this one I love this is, is this a roasted leaves? chicken roasted chicken with like um, uh, with grapes and chili peppers and uh, vine leaves uh, oh I love this one. So <laughs> guys this this book is making me hungry but I'm too lazy to make any of this it's pretty easy most of some of the recipes it, most of them are very very easy to make so wow. it, will it be released eventually in America so that the English translation was so bad I mean the the translator sent me a sample which was excellent but then the rest of the book uh, was just uh, Google translate it was ridiculous okay. so we decided not to wait for another trans- translation it takes um, it takes a lot of time f- to translate a book and to publish it in but Hebrew will it what will it be released eventually hopefully hopefully okay maybe someone can find me a publisher actually yeah We have all kinds of listeners so <laughs> if yeah. someone wants is interested and this uh, is yeah then you guys can contact Ruthie Russo but this also and we'll put uh, we'll talk about how to get in touch with you in a, yes. in a bit but it's also not just recipes it's right stories. many stories. stories some of them hilarious really okay. some of them are really really funny okay amazing um, how can someone get in touch with you? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find no actually I'm not because no one can spell my name. Um, you can find me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, but you spell it R-U-T-H-I-E, like the Jewish ending. And my last name is R-O-U-S-S-O, which no one gets. It's not R-U-S-S-O. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We'll put links. <laughs> And do. before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. It's a Jewish news outlet in Los Angeles. Check them out at jewishjournal.com. They have great articles, great podcasts, jewishjournal.com. And... And guys, we do this on our free time. So if you want to help us out, we accept donations. Go to 2NJB.com slash donate. Uh, one last time, our sponsors, thechosenonegame.com. Uh, it's a really funny card game if you guys obviously saw at the beginning. Um, and check out uh, Ruti's book and check her out. It's good for gifts online. and for Hebrew. Yeah. Yes. Like family, people who yes. speak Hebrew. For the holidays. Yeah. Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much, much for coming. You. Thank you for Bye. having me. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye.